Order. Order. The eyes to the right, 310. The nose to the left, 310. <laughs> Parliament finally has its say, and it's no, 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 no. Who knows about Brexit? No one knows what it is. It's like this mad riddle. Who's in control of Brexit? This debate, this division, cannot drag on much longer. MPs have voted by a majority of just a single vote to force Theresa May to seek a further delay to Brexit. Amid all the parliamentary drama of Brexit, it can be hard to take the long view. Today's political battles seem to happen hour by hour, week by week, and media coverage of politics can seem to be personality-driven, a kind of horse race. But underneath it all is a battle of ideologies, one that stretches back to the 1970s. Britain has now had two years of experience within the European community. And on Thursday, as you all know, we'll be voting whether to stay in the common market or to leave it. And Newsday's guest tonight is Mrs Margaret Thatcher, the leader of the Conservative Party, who will be talking about her own ideas about the European question after the news tonight from Angela Rippon. We are part of the British nation. We're proud, we're patriotic. But we recognise that to win the peace, we've got to combine together with other nations and try to form a larger community. Next month will mark 40 years since the election of Margaret Thatcher, who ushered in a new age of neoliberal capitalism and whose leadership was defined by party infighting over Europe. Perhaps that sounds familiar. No! 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 Parliament finally has its say and it's no, 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 no. We're living through the biggest backlash against neoliberalism for 40 years and the biggest crisis over Britain's relationship with Europe since the Second World War. Climate breakdown, technological change represent major challenges, threats to the way we live and the way we work. So against that kind of tumultuous backdrop, where does the politics of conservatism and its relationship with capitalism in particular, where does that relationship go next? People are watching now, honestly, and they're looking at you. Is this guy a potential leader of the party? I'm going to ask you about leadership, Jacob Rees-Mogg. Will you be Prime Minister? Will I be Prime yeah. Minister? No, I will not be Prime Minister. Just hear me talking, not listening. Jeremy Hunt, he's a Scorpio. It's quite rare for the UK to have a Scorpio leader. Uh, of course, there's always the Brexiteer and former Foreign Secretary, uh, Boris Johnson. Boris is a Gemini. Jacob Rees-Mogg is a Gemini. Donald Trump is a Gemini. It's a kind of unlikely one for politicians. Does the Prime Minister still have your support? Absolutely. I think this is a time for uh, cool heads. You're listening to Polarise, the podcast from the RSA that's all about the big divides in our politics and our culture. I'm Matthew Taylor. We choose the path of modern Britain, tolerant Britain, global Britain. Ian Leslie is away this week. So in this episode, I've had two conversations, one primarily about capitalism and one primarily about conservatism, but also the relationship between the two. In a few moments, I'll be talking to the commentator and broadcaster Ian Dale about the politics of all this. I could ask him who might replace Theresa May, uh, about the roots of the fragmentation of the Conservative Party, competing ideologies on the right. 
But now, uh, earlier this week, I caught up with the economic historian Jacob Field to talk about, among other things, how neoliberal capitalism came to dominate economic thinking on the right. So I got here today by taking the Piccadilly line... Jacob is a research associate at Cambridge University (laughs) and author of a new book on the central question many people are still asking, a decade on from the financial crisis. Is capitalism working? Well, in answer to that, capitalism has indeed worked in the past and it is currently working for some people. But if it's going to be sustainable in the future, I think it has to be adapted and maybe reformed slightly to become more equitable and also to meet the challenges of climate change. So what's really interesting to me about that thesis, with which I completely agree, uh, is that arguably, in Britain at least, uh, we have two political offers in relation to capitalism. We have a a Labour offer, which is fundamentally at the moment, under Corbyn's leadership, pretty kind of sceptical about capitalism, would really want to kind of massively expand the state and massively diminish the power of capitalism. And then you've got on the conservative right, notwithstanding some things that Theresa May said when she was elected, but you have uh, a kind of love of capitalism red in tooth and claw, what is sometimes referred to as kind of neoliberalism. It's kind of interesting, isn't it, that, that that position, capitalism is good, but it needs quite fundamental reform. It's a bit friendless as a position. <laughs> Yeah, it's very hard for it to find a backing because I still think a lot of the Conservatives haven't quite recovered from the Margaret Thatcher days. And she was the poster woman of the neoliberal reforms of the 80s and 90s, along with the poster boy, Ronald Reagan. And she is still so beloved by a lot of the core of of the party that they find it very hard to move on from this Thatcherite neoliberal idea of capitalism, notwithstanding the kind of Cameroon move to make it a bit more environmentally friendly, perhaps. And then on the Labour side of things, we're getting another kind of 80s redux where you have Corbyn bringing in what a lot of people who remember the other arguments in the 1980s that went on to the Labour Party would be getting a sense of deja vu right now. One thing I'm interested in, Jacob, is that you see in the post-war period a kind of view which is that for society to work and to avoid what happened in the 30s, both in terms of in the 20s and 30s, both in terms of economic collapse and social divide, that you need a balance between the state and the market Mm -hmm. and that capitalism has to deliver certain outcomes with the state, full employment, rising living standards, low levels of inequality. But at the very margin, starting towards the end of the Second World War, there's a group of thinkers around Frederick Hayek who are arguing against this, who see this as the slippery road, the road, he'd say, to serfdom and who want to argue for a much more classical account of capitalism and to argue that the state is inherently kind of problematic. Our second guest is the Nobel laureate Friedrich von Hayek. To make making people equal a goal of governmental policy would force government to treat people very unequally indeed. Those few of us who believed in freedom and free markets in minimum government, were regarded as nuts. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. How does this move from a small number of ideologically judged academics to become the kind of dominant ideology of the world? I mean, in terms of influence, few people have ever made so much difference as that group around Hayek. 
they managed to tie themselves to some very important people who happened to go on uh, to be very influential. So I think in this country, Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher took on Hayek's ideas and Milton Friedman's ideas uh, and sort of installed them in right-leaning think tanks, which proved to be extremely influential. And I think the other thing that happens in the early 70s is you have the OPEC crisis. Mm -hmm. This is NBC Nightly News, Wednesday, October 17th. Good evening. The Middle East war produced developments all over the world today. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. They will reduce oil production by 5% a month until the Israelis withdraw from occupied territories. Less Arab oil won't hurt the United States much, but it will pose quite severe problems for the Japanese and especially for the West European countries. Here's and some governments went towards the left as their solution to that. And then you have this counterbalance of people moving more to the right and embracing neoliberalism as their solution to this crisis of mm. the 70s. You kind of have this pendulum which keeps on swinging further and further. And so when we have the problems of the IMF uh, in this country... Margaret Thatcher can say, look, we're at a difficult time and my solution is the one which is going to deliver this country out of chaos and bankruptcy. So I suppose the lesson there is be ready for the crisis when it comes. So let's return to this question of, of the reform of capitalism. You've just written, or I think just finished, a history of Europe. And of course, continental Europe has had a different kind of perspective on mm -hmm. capitalism. It has had more of a kind of uh, that, that kind of European social model. And they've persisted with that. And for example, you can see in the way in which they're responding to big tech, the continuation of that scepticism about capitalism being able to, as it were, solve its own problems. Do you think that European model is the right one? Well, I think the European model is certainly doing some very useful things that we could use. I think the, the strength of trade unions in some parts of Europe, although sometimes it inconveniences people who want to travel from, from London to France about now. It's something we could learn from the fact in Germany you have to have worker representatives on company boards. It's not a bad idea. And the fact that I think governments aren't afraid to be accused of being big thinkers in this kind of status way of running things, a little bit harder for a British prime minister, particularly a conservative one, to do that. Is the fundamental thing that is different about neoliberalism the role of finance, that that is the kind of big shift, that it's the financialization mm. plus the globalization of capitalism, which changes its character fundamentally. Yes, I think this idea that everything is a tradable commodity or everything can be turned into a tradable commodity means it moves much faster than the sort of 18th and 19th century fathers of classical liberalism uh, could have foreseen. Uh, even much faster than people like Margaret Thatcher or, or Keith Joseph or Milton Friedman could have foreseen the fact that you can have instantaneous trading of almost anything overnight means if you deregulate your financial markets, you can have economic crises happen extremely quickly and in ways which we couldn't foresee, such as the global financial crisis. And the way in which I think some people would say you need to address the power of kind of big capital financialization is through international action. Mm -hmm. And there is some of that going on. I mean, the OECD is doing a lot of good work, for example, around kind of tax regimes and trying to deal with the issue of companies moving their headquarters around to avoid tax. But the other response we're seeing is kind of protectionism, mm -hmm. is a kind of withdrawal, and this is the, the Trump agenda to, to a certain extent. Um, which of those two routes, if we agree, you and I, that, that actually trying to find a way of 
of an intelligent way of regulating capitalism, making sure capitalism works for social good is an important project. Which of those two routes are kind of international regulation mm. or retreating slightly more to the kind of idea of, of protectionism? Which of those seems to you to be a more kind of realistic route? Well, well, to me, I think retreating inwardly and trying to make some sort of autarky, as Trump seems to be thinking to do, is, is it's just not going to work. I think the globalist ship has sailed. And what's ironic about Trump is he's saying a lot of the things about neoliberals that the anti-globalist protesters were saying in the 90s. But simply to say that we're going to get America manufacturing again and turn it into a manufacturing powerhouse, its workforce isn't suited to that, its economy isn't suited to that, and it, its capitalism really isn't suited to that. America has moved on. So I think we have to be internationalist in our point of view. And because, as you say, very creative accountants, very creative lawyers can move things around so companies can pay almost minimal tax. So we think we have to think globally if we're going to find some sort of solution to the problems and and, and faults of capitalism. But yet we're trying to do that at a time when international cooperation is at a low ebb. Mm. You know, I was... Just recalling the other day, 2005, that amazing kind of three days, which began with London winning the Olympic bid, then the next day, the 7-7 bombings. And at the same time, the Glen Eagles G8 summit, which was when international leaders came together and really tried to do something quite substantial about debt and climate change. And reading about that, I was just thinking how far we've retreated from that kind of optimistic international, you know, intergovernmental globalism. So if you're right that to tackle the worst excesses of capitalism, we need global cooperation. The the, the signs aren't great at the moment. No, I mean, this is not the best time to be kind of globalist internationalist, because even the word globalist has got a lot of negative connotations, depending on what side of the political spectrum you are. To what extent do you think the issue of reforming capitalism and the issue of tackling climate change go hand in hand? I think they do go hand in hand, because I think to reform capitalism effectively... You have to say the government has to have some sort of role in regulating it. And to tackle the problems we're going to have with climate change, the government has to be involved. I don't think there's a free market solution to climate change. So that brings us back to conservatism. Because think of the word conservatism. It's got the same root as conservation. It ought to be, surely, that a conservative movement is a movement that, that, that is critical of a form of capitalism which is short-term, that is kind of blind to the consequences of its actions. Do you think there's any scope for... And, and, maybe, and it's possible Michael Gove might be the next leader of the Conservative Party, and he's you know been outspoken on the environment. Is Could the path away from the rights infatuation with kind of neoliberal capitalism mm-hmm. come through a recognition of climate change and a kind of, cons- you know, and we've seen this in Germany. I mean, in Germany, we have a green movement that is recruiting people on the centre-right. Mm-hmm. Do you see any route whereby a proper acknowledgement and recognition of climate change might be the route for conservatives to rediscover conservatism? I, I think it's very possible because for their faults, the Conservative Party has been very good as remaining a going concern. And if they realise that the next generation of voters are extremely passionate about climate change and it's going to be a very important issue for them, I think they can use it as sort of one of the sort of centrepieces of a new conservative politics. Remember, Margaret Thatcher didn't take into account all aspects of neoliberalism. She didn't completely dismantle the NHS. And she believed in climate change. I mean, she's one of the very first leaders globally to, to say that it should be taken seriously. So, you know, we can, yes, combine Thatcherism with a friendlier pro-environment conservatism. I think it can work. But 
in my opinion, to get these solutions to climate change, you have to accept a bigger role for the government in this particular uh, aspect. And I think for some conservatives, this idea of giving power back to the government might be seen as a betrayal of some of the values which they hold most dear. But maybe not. The final question, I guess, is that, that again takes us back to conservatism because it takes us back to the kind of paternalism of conservatism, which is to say to people, look, we understand that you don't want to have to reduce the number of flights that you take. We understand you don't want to have to pay more for your fuel. We understand all this stuff. But actually, there is in conservatism a kind of sense of, look, we have a duty to mm -hmm. our country, to our future, to conserve. Yes. And that's why we need to put aside our kind of short-term needs in favour of a kind of longer-term sense of response. There's, there's nothing anti I mean, I understand what you're saying about the state, mm. but there's nothing anti-conservative about that idea, is there? No, not at all. And I think, you know, going back to some of the fathers of conservatism before neoliberalism, I think Benjamin Disraeli was a man who introduced a lot of reforms when, when he was prime minister. And I think he probably would have had no problem with these kind of ambitious reforms because he was ambitious in his idea of what the government could do as long as, as you say, it retains the spirit of conservatism and fits in with the overall message. So I think the two can be married together, um, but it all depends on, on what happens in, in a post-May world. Great. Well... Jacob, that was a fantastic conversation. Um, I've plugged one of your books, which is Is Capitalism Working? A Primer for the 21st Century, but you've given us your time, so the very least I can do is ask you to, to pre-plug your next one. Sure. So my next book is called A History of Europe in Bite-Sized Chunks. It's the 180 history. pages, you told yes, me. Yes, uh, you can get from the Minoan civilization to Brexit in just uh, 180 pages or so. And you finished it? It's finished. So what did you say was going to happen with Brexit? <laughs> I handed in my copy in February, and I had a paragraph, and my conclusion was, the future still seems very unclear. That's a very wise I choice. I think it'll still, <laughs> it'll still feel topical at least a couple of years. Thank sure. you very much. Thank you. Jacob Field's book, Is Capitalism Working?, is published by Thames and Hudson and is available in bookshops now. To look at the politics of conservatism. 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 No such thing. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> Very good. To look at the politics of conservatism, the competing ideologies on the right and how they battle to replace Theresa May might play out, I'm joined by the commentator and broadcaster Ian Dale, who's been observing, participating in writer centre politics for many, many years. So, um, Ian... You just told me that you've written your conservative home diary. <laughs> and as someone who's resolutely cheerful, even you are finding it quite hard to keep your pecker up. Well, it is, a, I think, a depressing time for everyone where uh, we feel completely let down by the political classes. I think that's the same whether you're on the left or the right, actually. And as somebody who's a political enthusiast, a political geek, um, most of my working life I've been involved in politics in one way or another – I do find it profoundly depressing. Uh, we have the most supine cabinet that we've ever had. Nick Bowles said it was the worst cabinet for 100 years. Now, that might be pushing it, but I can see his point. And when you feel that uh, the whole political class is letting down the country, you kind of think, well, what can be done about it? And I tried to be a Tory MP back in 2005. Um, I came off the candidates list in 2010. I'm not a member of the Conservative Party anymore, mainly because of the work that I do. 
But the political virus never goes away. And for the first time in 10 years, I'm thinking, well, at the ripe old age of 56, should I get back involved again? Because if, if people don't actually get involved, don't be surprised if other people let you down. Um, I'm not saying I'm going to, but it, it's certainly been on my mind for the last week in a way that it, it, it hasn't for the last 10 years. Because it is, it is incredible what's happening in the Conservative Party. I was listening to the Today programme this morning and uh, they were interviewing uh, party members, activists, the public, mm, I think. Yes, in, I heard that in, too. In Somerset. On a sodden day here in a Brexit crisis... Which party are you Conservative? It's not easy asking voters for their support as the Conservative candidate. No chance. What, after the bloody mess they've left us in? You've got to be joking. I'm watching it on the television here now. Disgraceful, the bloody lot of you. And the kind of viscerality of it, the kind of despair of it, and also the, the complete breakdown of any kind of sense of... There was no sense of compass. It was like you could mm. say what you want to say. I mean, mm. the MP spoke, you know, from, from the heart. Um, have you ever known a, a time... And the, the, like, the Conservative Party has had its moments of division. It's had its moments of, of, of being in a, in a poor state. I mean, I helped Labour be elected in 97. The Conservative Party was in a pretty, pretty poor state then. But it's never been like this before, has it? Um, I'm not sure. I remember the days of Maastricht, and um, it was a bit like that then. Not quite so bad, maybe. But something has actually changed in the last week or 10 days, I feel, where um, the number of people phoning into my radio show telling me that they'll never vote Conservative again, or, even, or actually some people saying they'll never vote Labour again because people also feel let down by the stance that Jeremy Corbyn's taken on this. Um, you, you do have to sometimes discount people who say, well, I'll never vote Tory again, because I have heard this quite a lot over the last 30 or 40 years. The first time I remember was over Sunday trading reform back in 1986. Well, they were, weren't they? I was working for a Tory MP and literally the letters would come in by the sackload every day from staunch Tory voters saying, I shall never vote Tory again if, the, if Mrs Thatcher continues with this. And we've had it on all sorts of things since then. But it does feel a bit different this time. You're right. And for the first time, I, I do think if there was a general election in the next month or two, the Tories would be absolutely eviscerated in a way that I hadn't really felt up until now. You know, what has always been said about the Conservative Party is in a sense, you know, the ideology of the Conservative Party is the Conservative Party. It's keeping the Conservative Party together and winning elections. And it's a, been a brilliant machine for that for most of its history. That's the thing that's gone. That's the thing that's really most startling about this is it, that has simply gone. Nobody, it seems to me, I mean, I'm sure the Prime Minister would probably say this, but almost nobody seems to be saying keeping the Conservative Party together is, is, is a project that is even possible at the moment. Well, she's given up on that. This week, she gave up on the Conservative Party by entering these cross-party talks with Jeremy Corbyn against the advice of most of her cabinet, which is interesting in itself from a constitutional point of view. She has decided that talks with the opposition are more likely to result in some sort of agreement to get us out of the EU than not. Now, the, the natural consequence of that is to join a customs union because that seems to be the only thing that... I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, I think that would be one of his red lines. Well, if that does become reality, that will be totally unacceptable to at least half the cabinet. Now, you'd like to think they might actually have the bollocks to resign after that, but yeah, I'm still I'm not sure that they would. Some of them think that they can influence things more on the inside than out. Well, how's that gone for them? 
Um, but to be fair, but, but, but to be fair to the prime minister, which is not a phrase you hear very often, but to be fair to the prime minister, there's as much rage with her from the kind of Nick Bowles wing of, it, uh, yeah. of, of the party as there is from the kind of Marc Francois. I mean, she, you know, th- this is not a group of people who want to be led. To be frank. <laughs> Well, the Conservative Party goes through these spasms every from time to time. It doesn't want to be led. You you, you go back 100, 150 years and we, we can see examples of that. When the Conservative Party is at its most successful, it, it is a big tent coalition. And if, you, if we go back to the 1980s, you had the authoritarian right, that sort of hang em and flog em brigade, John Carlyle, people like that. And then you had Jim Lester, Ken Clark, people on the left of the party. And they would all happily describe themselves as conservatives. Today, you have Mark Francois, Andrew Bridgen, Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, Steve Baker. And then you have, again, Ken Clark um, and others on the left of the party. Now, on virtually every other issue, I say virtually, they would be fairly in a, fairly much, much in agreement but Europe has this, been this running sore throughout the Conservative Party, really going back to the 1960s. It did, this did not start with Margaret Thatcher. In fact, you could make an argument that Margaret Thatcher was the biggest pragmatist on Europe when she was in office. Her tone changed when she left. But this has been uh, – th- th- there's a chasm now in the Conservative Party. You cannot reconcile the views of Marc Francois with those of uh, Ken Clark. It is now impossible. So given that Brexit is dominating all of our politics at the moment to the exclusion of more or less everything else, it's not surprising that the, these, these fissures are coming to the fore. They're, they're blindingly obvious for everyone to see. And nobody's really denying it. I mean, normally in these circumstances, you'll have cabinet ministers going on the radio saying, oh, no, 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 we're all perfectly united. But, but it's a kind of three-dimensional chess, isn't it, Ian? Because, OK, you've got you, – you, you've just described two of these dimensions. There's a, there's a kind of moderate – purist dimension of of the right and then there's the euro friendly euro skeptic position which which roughly speaking though those groups overlap not totally but they largely overlap but then you've got this third dimension which isn't just a dimension within the conservative party but is within broader society and that's between liberalism yep. and social conservatism and of course margaret thatcher's an incredible trick is that she managed to combine a kind of liberal economics, a kind of neoliberal economics, with a kind of social conservative. Andrew Gamble, the, uh, the, the political economist, wrote a book, I think, called Free Market, Strong State, to describe her particular kind of brand of politics. To what extent is that, is that playing out at the moment of the Conservative Party, that distinction between the kind of economically liberal wing and the more socially conservative wing? Because, of course, when Theresa May came into power... Her position, you know, with Nick Timothy, was that she was going to be reassert that that more paternalistic, more socially mm. conservative perspective, be much more critical of the kind of neoliberal, the economic liberalism side. I think that's right. I, I do think the social conservative side of the Conservative Party is diminishing as each generation dies out. I, I personally, I've always been as dry as dust economically. I don't know. I, I've never really understood this phrase neoliberal, but I, I, I'm a liberal conservative, sort of Gladstonian conservative, in, or Gladstonian liberal in many ways. Very hands off, small state, low tax. And I think that's where the bulk of the Conservative Party finds itself now. On, the, on social issues, I'm a what is a lettuce social liberal? I, I would say on many things, people would describe my views as fairly left, or maybe even Blairite, uh, to use that word, which we're not allowed to use anymore. 
Um, I know you are. But, on uh, this program, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, on immigration, I, I didn't vote to leave the EU because of immigration. It didn't play any role in my view whatsoever. On uh, abortion, I've gone on a bit of a journey on that. If you'd asked me this 20 years ago, I would have been a social conservative on abortion. Mm. But in, in the end, pragmatism wins out And do you here. think it, right, so Ian, that, that combination of economic liberalism, social liberalism, do you think that, is broadly where the Conservative Party is. That's that is the the in the very, end very broadly. So th- so this is the issue. Uh, we have had on this program conversations with you know, sociologists, political scientists, and they are pretty consistent in their view of where the public is. They say what is what if you were putting together a package that was popular for the public right now, it would be economically left wing and socially right wing. That's where the public is. The public feels that, you know, capitalism isn't working, inequality is a big problem, the elites are out of control. At the same time, they don't like immigration. They think that in ways that are quite incoherent, but nevertheless, they think that kind of liberalism's gone too far, political correctness, all that. So actually, your position, which you've described, I'm not not attacking you for this, is, is diametrically opposed to where the public is. And that may well be why the Conservative Party is out of power for quite a long time, because all political parties have to be in touch with the electorate. But there isn't a political party at the moment that you could say, well, I mean, using your definitions there, there isn't a political party that really is in touch. Um, I think this is much more a sort of metropolitan versus country thing than anything else. Those of us who inhabit the sort of Westminster media bubble sometimes have to make sure that we get out of it to understand what really is going out there. Um, I think you are right to an extent that the public is more socially conservative than the, than the political classes. Um, for all sorts of different reasons. And um, I found that when I stood as a candidate in in Norfolk, where I was in a very socially conservative area as a sort of out gay man. Well, you can come to your own conclusions about whether that was why I was unsuccessful. I think it's much more complicated than that. But I think also um, we do live in a much more tolerant and inclusive society in 2019 than we did in 2005. And I do think that attitudes on all sorts of different issues have changed. You look at social media, and that might prove the opposite. For example, uh, I tweeted yesterday this this video of the paratroopers shooting mm. at the target of Jeremy Corbyn, saying, so I think we can all agree this is a pretty outrageous thing to do. Well, you look at the replies on that Twitter thread, and uh, that is certainly not what a lot of people on social media think. I'm either a snowflake, I haven't got a sense of humour, well, fine to do that to Jeremy Corbyn because he supports the IRA, blah, 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 blah. Um, And you sort of tend to lose your faith in human nature when you read these comments on social media quite a lot. So, uh, uh, funnily enough, today we have speaking at the RSA, Cass Sunstein, the American public intellectual, has written a book about how change happens. And... One of the things he's interested in is what he calls norm entrepreneurs. And they're people who are able to tap into a kind of underexpressed uh, set of norms and values and then bring them to the surface and make them respectable. Trump is a genius at this. He's able mm. to kind of say things which, when he says them, seem outrageous. But actually, uh, he has a capacity to touch something where the public as a whole has been feeling uneasy about something. And it gives them permission to, to say it. Do you think, although you know UKIP is in the doldrums right now, that there is space on the right for a party that does speak to yeah. a kind of more in, a less tolerant, uh, less pluralistic, less metropolitan view of the world? 
Well, you say Trump, I'll say Nigel Farage. Mm. Um, I think he's a brilliant exponent of that. Now, UKIP, I regard as a party that is now beyond the pale. Um, it's become an Islamophobic party. It's not an anti-EU party anymore. It's anti-Islam. So UKIP to me is now almost an irrelevance. It's still scoring 5 to 7% in the opinion polls. But there is this new Brexit party, which Farage is putting together. Now, if we have European elections, I think that that party could sweep the board. Now, that's more about Brexit than anything else. But there is space opening up on the right for a, how do I phrase this? I was going to say more moderate sort of version of, of UKIP. Mm. Um, and Farage, when you talk to Farage, and bear in mind, I, I, he hands over his radio show to me every day, so I see him every day. He is much more liberal in his outlook, in inverted commas, than possibly he might like to project. Um, he's actually open to discussions on a lot of liberal issues. I remember when equal marriage came up, he rang me up and wanted to ask my views on it. Now, in the end, UKIP adopted a policy of being anti it. But he will actually engage in the discussion. And I think some of the lines that he took as UKIP leader um, were done not necessarily because he believed them, but because he felt that was how he how he could build a sort of broad coalition of support. Now, if there is to be a successful alternative to the Conservatives, the Conservatives would, I think, have to probably formally split. So you would get the Jacob Rees-Mogg wing of the party splitting off from the rest of the party. Now, the Conservative Party has a, an innate talent of survival, and it's been written off many, many times over the decades, over the centuries, actually. And um, after 1997, people wondered whether it could survive, and it went through some terrible times. But I, I don't see the party being in that position yet. It could happen. You've got one or two people peeling off on, on the left of the party, but it is only one or two. There are many who I thought might go that haven't. That doesn't mean to say they won't, but is, they, ha they is haven't Is it true yet. what some of those MPs say, which is that their local parties have been taken over, well, not perhaps taken over, but heavily influenced by incoming UKIP voters, that you have the same problem of right-wing entryism as the Labour Party has had of left-wing entryism? I see little evidence of that, I have to say. Um, I've seen some figures about new membership in in constituencies all around the country. And you haven't got the numbers to make that a credible accusation. And even if you had, most of these people were Conservative Party members before. They then drifted off to UKIP for all the reasons that we know, and they've now come back. The guy that's leading the deselection against uh, Dominic Grieve was a Conservative Party member before he joined UKIP, and now he's come back. So... You said earlier in that the, the you know the genius of the Conservative Party and to a certain extent at the Labour Party at various times has been to hold together this broad coalition, and some people are who defend the first past the post electoral system we have say well, you know one of the reasons this country has not suffered from political extremism is because in in a sense in order to win you you've got to kind of go to the centre in the first past the post system you have these coalitions and therefore the kind of extreme left and the extreme right are either in kind of splinter parties that can never make any ground or else they are the minority within these big tent major parties. And yeah. that is what is fragmenting right now. Uh, well, which, it, you say it's fragmenting, but if you look at the result of the 2017 election, it, it isn't because the two main parties got, what, 85% of the vote between the highest yeah, but one of many, those, many one years. One of those parties standing on a much more left-wing platform. Uh, so one of those parties now largely in the hands of people who are more true believers. And that now that's the question. Is that, is that what's going to happen to, uh, to, to the Conservative Party? So this brings us to kind of your sense of what's going to happen next. Now, I know 
given that we live in a world we don't know what's going to happen in the next hour, asking what's going to happen unfold <laughs> in the next couple of months is somewhat unfair. Well, that, that is the question that, uh, I mean, people actually stop me in the street. I had a guy at Tunbridge Station this morning, I oh, saw your news night last night, what's going to happen? That is what people ask me all the time. And I wish I had uh, an answer beyond I haven't got a clue. Well, uh, let, let, let's just explore a couple of scenarios then. So we, we know one thing we do know is that sooner or later Theresa May is going to go. Yeah. Right? Now, whether it's going to be a week or a month or three months, we don't know, but she's going to go soon. Uh, who do you think, uh, if, you, if, you, if I was to force £1,000 into your hands and say you've got to bet on the two people, the two people who are going to emerge from the Conservative process, just in case people don't know, the way the Conservative leadership works is that the, t- the two candidates are chosen by the parliamentary party and then they go to the party as a whole. Who do you think are the two people <laughs> most likely to end up on that ballot? I change my mind on that every week. Um, <laughs> two weeks ago, I wrote that Michael Gove and Jeremy Hunt, I thought, would be the two that would emerge. I don't think I think that any longer. And that's changed in the last 48 hours. Because I think any member of the cabinet who's gone along with what Theresa May wants to do with Jeremy Corbyn, and if we do end up mm. proposing a customs union, I think they're all toast. I, I, don't, I just don't see how... Now, they might not be toast within the parliamentary party, but they would be toast in the country at large. So those who have been strengthened by what's happened this week would be Boris Johnson, David Davis and Dominic Raab because their hands are clean. They can say, well, we resigned because we, we did it out of... Now, I think David Davis and Dominic Raab did do it out of principle. Boris, well, I think we have the jury, juries out on that one. But Boris Johnson's reaction to this was very interesting. It was quite statesman-like, quite sort of moderated... And he seems to have finally cottoned on that if he wants to be um, a statesman and wants to be prime minister, he's kind of got to act like one. I think he's getting some very different advice now to that that he used to have. Now, I still think it's a real challenge for him to get through the first stage. He's not popular with MPs. He's made little effort over the years to uh, ingratiate himself with them. He's been holding dinners, or Jacob Rees-Mogg has been holding dinners for him in his house just opposite the House of Commons. And my understanding from somebody who's been to one of those dinners is that they, they're actually very interesting. They, they really get into good discussions about the future of conservatism. But Boris is a peripheral figure in these discussions and will chirp up from time to time as if to say, look, I am here, guys, but everybody else just gets on with the conversation. And I, I said this to one of his campaign team. They said, oh, yes, well, that's a deliberate strategy because he then follows up with everybody who is at the dinner. Seems a bit strange to me. So I think it will still be quite difficult. I think that if they have a timetable that stretches out to beyond the party conference, just as in 2005, remember I was David mm. Davis's chief of staff in that, uh, in that leadership election, the longer it goes on, the more chance there is for somebody to emerge that nobody's ever really thought of. And what do you think that election, when it comes about, is going to be about? Is it going to be about Europe or is it going to be between a kind of a, a person who says, I'm going to hold the party together versus a person who says, I'm going to take the party in the direction the members want it to go in? That is, you know, is that, is that, how is it, what do you think I, the sides will be? I don't think it will be the latter. If you think back to 2005, um, David Cameron took the, was quite blunt in saying, well, I'm going to take the party in no, a no, direction absolutely. that the members don't want it to go in. And he got two thirds of the vote. So th- this myth that the socially conservative Blue Rinse Brigade and all the rest of it will only vote for somebody that has holds their views, it's ridiculous. They will vote for who they think will win an election. And they will vote for somebody with a bit of spark to them. Now, 
Now, Boris does actually fill that criteria. Whatever his downsides mm. are, he, he, people do like him. If you just have to w- watch him walk down a street and he's mobbed by people, and these are not political people, it's just ordinary members of the public. And, and I think that might be how he might... In fact, it's probably his only way of getting through through the parliamentary stages if the parliamentary party come to the conclusion that he's an election winner. But there might well be somebody... But he will then present himself as a unity candidate, presumably. Yeah, and that's, He won't uh, present himself uh, as well, the... And, that, and, kind of, and let's remember, Boris Johnson is not an extreme right-winger. You go back decades and look at his writings... which Boris Johnson we're talking about, of course. Well, that, that is very true. <laughs> and that is a problem for him in many ways. But he is, he is a quintessential one nation conservative when you get down to it but he's done very well to hide that over the last uh, three or four years um i don't know if you remember a tv series i think it was on channel four probably about 10 years ago called the amazing mrs pritchard where it's a political drama kind of a comedy in some ways where this housewife emerges from nowhere and becomes prime minister not just for myself but possibly on behalf of a lot of other people very, very disappointing it is that the only choice we've got who represents us in Parliament amounts a little more than you two. Could I just say... No, I'd really rather you didn't. You tell them, Ros. I could do better than you lot. Yeah, they all say that, love. Right, come on. And I'm not saying that there will be somebody that we've never heard of that comes out of the woodwork, but I do think there are a few people... And Johnny Mer- take Johnny Mercer. He's not of the Conservative Party. He's got an interesting background as a soldier. He he wears his heart on his sleeve and, and he says what he thinks. Now, that will have a huge appeal to voters. Now, does it have an appeal to his colleagues? Possibly not, because they regard him as a bit of a renegade. But somebody like him, and there are probably a few others, I and mean, James Cleverly is quite overt in that he would like to lead the party. I mean, he's, he's been very open in his ambitions. Um, that doesn't necessarily go down well with his colleagues. But again, somebody with an interesting backstory, somebody who appears very personable and likable on the media, um, hasn't ever been a minister. Now, somebody said to me the other day, look at all the elections from the last five years, and has anybody won by being safety first? And the answer is, in virtually all circumstances, not. They are risk takers. And they're people from the outside of normal politics often. Mm. I mean, even even Macron, I mean, okay, he was off politics, but he he, he got the presidency. He, he wasn't a member of the, I mean, he got out of the Socialist Party and formed his own party. So even he fought, well, com- falls into Comedians that. are bidding rather well, well <laughs> so do you know any, do you, do you have any insights I into think, any comedians Je- on the backbenches of the Conservative well, Party? Well, I think Jeff Norcott would make a great Prime Minister, one of the few Conservative comedians there are in the country. Um, <laughs> Uh, the voice of the common man, as he would say himself. So what I'm what I'm deriving uh, from this, Ian, is a sense that you do still think that that leadership can put the kind of Humpty Dumpty of the Conservative Party back together again. This is a program about polarisation, and whatever one thinks of the Conservative Party, and you know my political background, you could say that politically it has been a force against polarisation, because it has contained a whole variety of opinions, yeah. and it has been ultimately a kind of pragmatic force on the right of centre in British politics. But is that what you think, that actually we will look back on this in a year or two years and say that was a terrible kind of spasm, things really felt like they were fragmenting, but now X has come back to the front and it looks like it's the, well, we're all gathered in Bournemouth again in the autumn, we're all one party, we've somehow papered over the cracks, conservatism is, is alive and kicking. Do you, do, I think it partly depends on 
who is the successor to Theresa May, they could go one of two ways. They could do, as I've suggested, go for somebody who is a big risk, or they could think, well, actually, for the next two or three years, we do need someone with a bit of experience, almost have a stopgap leader. And there is a school of thought that that is the way that they should go. Somebody who can actually, who's not particularly exciting maybe, um, but has a bit of experience and somebody that the, the party and indeed the country could buy into. Now, you think, well, who would that be? Now, I, sitting here as former chief of staff to David Davis, I could easily make a case for him being that person. Mm. But I think a lot of people think that that ship sailed probably at Christmas. It may have sailed in June 2017. And it has, it- has to be a risk, doesn't it, Ian? That, and we've seen this before, that the public's attitude is anybody who's associated with Brexit, on any side of the debate, that they just want to say, look, that's finished. That whole generation has but kind it, of gone But there. it isn't finished. Um, it's going to dominate our politics for the next decade oh. at least, I'm afraid. <laughs> Thank you for that cheerful um, <laughs> But... Uh, I think the public is in a mood to look at... I mean, they want other things to happen. We all know what the problems are in the country. We all know what's got to be solved, and they need they want someone with a bit of vision apart from Brexit. And I think that is where uh, the successful candidate in the Tory party leadership election, I think, has got to focus their efforts on the non-Brexit issues. Right, so let's finish with that. Give you, I'll give you three questions that, that, that come up again and again when you're not talking about Brexit. And I'm interested in your view about where conservatism needs to be on those. So the first one is, is kind of big corporate power. You know, so we, we've seen a whole variety of examples of corporate yeah. misbehavior. Uh, and we see the power of Google and, uh, uh, and Facebook. The public does not really like big business right now. What's the appropriate conservative? I'm not sure the public has ever liked big business, to to be fair. Okay, it's more viscerally. But when you saw, I I couldn't believe this, on my business bulletin yesterday, um, it came up on my screen, the average salary for Google employees in this country is what? Have a guess. I should think it's six figures. It's £286,000 a year. Now, they employ quite a lot of people. And you think, well... In the real world, does anybody think that that's a reasonable uh, remuneration? So does conservatism need to have a story about the excesses of big capitalism? I mean, yeah, that's what Nick Timothy, he, he exactly. drove that. And it, well, he did. And it was controversial. Businesses were saying we're not allowed in Downing yeah. Street. So where do you think the Conservative Party needs to go on that? Well, I think John McDonnell has got there ahead of the Conservatives now, where he's diagnosed what the problem is with big business, but he's come up with a typical sort of Marxist solution to it. If you think that the Conservative Party is in the pocket of big business, you're never going to think that they will ever be able to do anything about it. Um, I I don't take that view. I think that they are perfectly capable of taking on vested interests. Um, People forget that actually George Osborne did far more about tax avoidance or evasion than Gordon Brown ever did. So it's perfectly possible for them to do it. They They don't particularly like to shout about that they're doing it, but maybe they need to do that a little bit more. I think it is possible for them to come up with policies where the public can think, oh, that's quite interesting. It's something that I wouldn't have expected the Conservative Party to do. But they can't be John McDonnell light about it. I mean, big business is important to the economy of this country, and anybody that works for a multinational firm will will be able to understand that. It's very easy for people who just sort of sit and observe from their academic ivory towers and think, oh, well, big business is just ripping us all off because they're, they're not paying enough corporation tax or whatever. It's perfectly possible to make them pay enough corporation tax. 
Um, it's just that successive governments, and I'm afraid yeah. the Tony Blair government was a prime example of this, decided that, well, to be electable, we have to be very friendly to business, and they let them get away with blue murder, to be honest. So, so conservatism 3.0 might have a kind of more explicit willingness to critique ca- uh, the excesses of some elements of, of, of capitalism. What about an issue that Michael Gove has been working hard to say can be a conservative issue, and that's climate change. It's interesting to me, for example, that the Greens in Germany appeal to be a lot of people on the right of centre. They're picking up as many votes from the CDU as they are from the SPD. Do you think that, uh, and given the amount that young people care about this, do you think that the next generation, the next Conservative leader will need to have, need to make more of climate change? David Cameron tried to do it. He got as much ridicule as he got support. But what's your view? I mean, people who have responsibility for it tend to get religion on it. Um, That's always been the case. Look at Greg Barker. You look at um, uh, all sorts of different environment ministers there have been. And you think, well, actually, well, if they do, there may be a reason for that. Um, I'm not sure I can see the Conservative Party adopting that as sort of one of their big three issues. And then finally, really the thing that's changing the world, we're sitting here talking about all of this, History will probably look back and say the thing that was really changing the world was technology. Yeah. You don't really associate your average conservative with a kind of up-to-date, cutting-edge knowledge of AI and robotics. But those <laughs> are the forces changing the world. Do you think that, again, the future of conservatives has to be looking as though there's a kind of understanding of technology and enthusiasm of what's possible for it, but also an understanding of its dangers? I think the problem for all politicians, whether they're conservative or not, is that they are being led by the technology rather than leading it. And when you think that there hasn't really been any serious attempt at at legislation governing uh, technology, the internet, whatever, for about 20 years, the legislation is way behind the science of this. And so that allows technology companies to get away with blue murder. Uh, And all politicians are fearful of trying to regulate the internet for fear of being accused of censorship and and all the rest of it. But I think that, I think there is a school of thought developing where that is one of the next big political debates. Now, temperamentally, I think people on my side of the argument would want to have a very sort of hands-off approach to a lot of this and, and almost let the market decide. Um, but you, you look at the excesses of companies like Facebook. Who well, are, online content. Who, see, online content is a classic issue, isn't it? I mean, if you're a conservative, one part of conservatism would say it is appalling that you know, pornographic, yeah. hate-filled content is on there, that people are making money out of this. This really infringes social conservative values. But another way in conservatism will say, well, no, you know, you don't have to watch it if you don't want to. The internet should be a free space. This is kind of, I mean, it might seem a, a, very, a, very, a very kind of narrow issue, but it, it really does expose this kind of oh, no, conflict. It, it, it really does. And um, the libertarian side of conservatives, and I think that's an increasingly powerful sort of influence group within conservative thinking, the libertarian side would be quite happy to have more or less a free-for-all. Now that we're going to, I tell you now, that there is a, a law that's about to come in where anybody that wants to get watch pornography is going to have to go down to the post office and buy a, a, a permit for it. Yeah, I'm, Nobody I'm, knows about I'm this I'm looking law. forward to what this is going to be I called. I think this is going to be... But, but what do you think it's, it's going to be the called? To- the tosser tax, I the think toss- it's called. Oh, right. I, I, wanker's, ta- wanker's tab. <laughs> exactly. Was right, but yeah. <laughs> so, but given the fact that at least 90% of men and apparently a very high proportion of women now watch pornography uh, regularly... 
um, this is going to cause absolute outrage, but nobody has really heard of it since. Oh, I keep saying to my producers, we should do something on the toss attacks. And they say, oh, no, no, we can't possibly do so that. I, I like this. So, Ian, it's been a fantastic <laughs> conversation. The one, well, the one, the one specific on. prediction I got out of this is that when the Conservative leadership campaign takes place, the one question they won't want to be asked at the hustings is, where do you stand on the toss attacks? Thank you, Ian. <laughs> Cheers. It's eight o'clock on Friday the 24th of June. The UK has voted to take the momentous step to leave the European Union. I think the country requires fresh leadership. People want to know where are the grown-ups, who's in charge, who's driving the bus. What's going to happen with the leadership of the Conservative Party? You cast around for who but Boris Johnson. Michael Gove, he said he doesn't want it. Theresa May, I'm not even sure she'll go for it. I could not be Prime Minister. I'm not equipped to be Prime Minister. I don't want to be Prime Minister. Michael Gove joins the race to be Prime Minister. The Conservative Party is in meltdown. Boris Johnson has pulled out of the Tory leadership contest. My pitch is very simple. I'm Theresa May and I think I'm the best person to be Prime Minister. Yeah. Brexit means Brexit. Reflecting on my conversation with Ian Dale, I think the one thing that I draw from it is that he, and he's a very thoughtful man, doesn't define conservatism politically, really, in terms of it as a political force needs to adopt a set of positions in relation to the kind of challenges we face. He really explores it as, can anybody hold it all together? What are the skills that would be required for somebody to rebuild the Conservative coalition. And I wonder whether, in a way, that's our problem, that we have political parties where the the challenge of holding them together, keeping them together, keeping them coherent, keeping them on the road, is so great that it doesn't give our leaders or our putative leaders the bandwidth to do what they should be doing, which is seeing their party as a secondary concern, that the primary concern is how do we tackle issues like having a responsible capitalism, making sure technology serves the human interest and tackling climate change. I'm uh, Jos de Blok and I worked for 15 years as a nurse. And I'm also an anarchist and an activist. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, uh, Jos de Blok, who runs a, an amazing social care outfit called Bertzorg, and it, it, it's an entirely decentralised organisation. There's no hierarchy. And last conclusion is let's avoid complexity. So we, we build And I remember he made this point about the fact that he allows the nurses who work for him to be largely autonomous. He said people have only got a certain capacity to cope with complexity and he wanted an organisation where people's capacity to deal with complexity was all focused on meeting the needs of clients and as little as possible on meeting the needs of the organisation and that he felt that bureaucratic public services were often the reverse. So I'm kind of reminded of that, that what we want is politicians who have to use as little bandwidth as possible in managing their parties so they've got the most bandwidth for helping the country deal with our issues. But chatting to Ian, it really does feel like the situation is absolutely the reverse. Anyway, that's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. We'd like to thank the publisher Thames and Hudson for their generous support of this episode. I've been Matthew Taylor. The producer was James Shield. And we were brought to you by the RSA.